0: The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad to see so many of you who have joined us, braved the cold on this Sunday morning to be here in the room with us. And I know there's a lot of you who are joining us from home on the warmth of your own sofa. So no shame to all of you, but I do see the truly spiritual among us here in the room this morning. So no, no shame. We're glad that you're here with us. If you have a Bible, grab it and let's go to Luke chapter seven. We're gonna at Luke chapter seven this morning. In his brand new book, How to Know a Person, New York Times columnist David Brooks tells the story of a breakfast meeting that he had in Waco, Texas, with a 93-year-old woman named LaRue Dorsey, a, a former school teacher and a community activist. And during the midst of that breakfast meeting, as they were talking together, they were both approached by a mutual friend named Jimmy Durrell. And Brooks writes about their encounter in this way. He says, he saw her across the room and came up to our table smiling as broadly as possible for a human face to smile. Then he grabbed her by the shoulders and shook her way harder than you should ever shake a 93-year-old. And he leaned in inches from her face and he cried out in a voice that filled the whole place, Mrs. Dorsey, Mrs. Dorsey, you're the best, you're the best. I love you, I love you. I'd never seen a whole person's aspect transform so suddenly. The old stern disciplinarian face that she had put on under my gaze vanished and a joyous Delighted nine year old girl appeared. By projecting a different quality of attention, Jimmy called forth a different version of her. And then here's the punchline I love this. Jimmy's gaze, when he greets a person, derives from a certain conception of what a person is. Jimmy is a pastor. And when Jimmy sees a person, any person, he is seeing a creature who is made in the image of God. He looks into each face. And when he's looking, he's looking at least a bit into the face of God. When Jimmy sees a person, any person, he's also seeing a creature endowed with an immortal soul, the soul of infinite value and dignity. When Jimmy greets a person, he's also trying to live up to one of the great callings of his faith. He's trying to see that person the way Jesus would see that person. He's trying to see them with Jesus' eyes, eyes that lavish love on the meek and the lowly, the marginalized and those in pain, and on every living person. When Jimmy sees a person, he comes in with the belief that this person is so important that Jesus was willing to die for their sake. As a result, Jimmy is going to greet people with respect and reverence. That's how he's always greeted This morning, I want to talk about seeing people the way that Jesus sees people. Last week, we began a sermon series that, that is really starting the year, but really setting the agenda for the remainder of the year for us as a church family. It's a series called One Life at a Time where we're talking about the reality that this movement that Jesus came to bring, this this movement that began 2,000 years ago, that has gone down through the centuries and that continues forward today, this, this movement that has gone global, that a third of the world's population now identify themselves as Christian, this movement Jesus came to bring began, has gone forward through the centuries, and continues forward today one life at a time. And Jesus has called us to be a part of this movement, this multi-ethnic movement of missionary disciples. And yet for us, it requires us to see the world around us the way that Jesus sees them, to move toward people the way Jesus moved toward them, to participate in this grand global movement one life at a time. And this morning, as we're going to look at this story in Luke chapter 7, this beautiful, powerful story of Jesus' encounter with one life, we're going to see the way in which he is moved with compassion. If you've spent much time around IBC at all, you've likely heard me talk about the reality that in Exodus chapter 34, when, when God himself sought to, uh, to, to identify himself to Moses, to, to reveal his glory to Moses, the first word that God reaches for to describe himself, he says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. And when the gospel writers write about Jesus, the most frequently used word to describe the emotional disposition of Jesus is that he was moved with compassion. And so friends, if it's true that God's agenda for you and me, if we have trusted in Christ for our salvation, if we become followers of Jesus, God's agenda for you and for me is to make us more and more like the one who has saved us. And if it is true that the most frequently used word to describe the emotional disposition of Jesus is compassion, then what does that say about what God wants to form in us, that God wants us to be people individually and to be a people collectively who engage the world around us with the compassionate heart of Jesus. And in this story in Luke chapter seven, we're going to see that heart on display. So look with me there. Luke seven, we'll begin in verse 11. This is one of my favorite Jesus stories in all the gospels. And I realize that I often refer to Jesus stories as my favorite because they're like all my favorite. But but this is one that so has spoken to me for years because it's one of the most powerful depictions of the compassionate heart of Jesus that we find. We'll pick up the story in verse 11. Soon afterwards, Jesus went into a town called Nain. And his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town, at the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Now, pause right there before we continue. Let's set the scene. Luke tells us that this story occurred in a town called Nain, on the, on the outskirts of this little town of Nain. Nain is about 25 miles um, south and west of Capernaum, Jesus' base of operations. It's about six miles southeast of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. So it's not very far from where Jesus grew up. In fact, Jesus, as he served alongside Joseph, the carpenter, may have done some work in the town of Nain. We, we don't know for sure, but it, it may be that Jesus actually had encountered this woman and her boy before. This town of Nain, the word Nain just means lovely um, or delightful, but there's nothing particularly lovely or delightful that this woman is experiencing in this moment as she leads the funeral procession of her son out from the city gate. And we're told as the story begins that Jesus is coming into town. He's being followed by his disciples and a large crowd. A whole bunch of people that have said, we, we've heard about what Jesus has, has done, we've, we've heard about his, his preaching, that, that they maybe have been impacted themselves, and, and they don't want to miss it, that something is happening with this guy, and so wherever he's going, we want to go too, because we don't want to miss it. So this large crowd has followed him kind of to the middle of nowhere, but this crowd is filled with enthusiasm, as they've heard of Jesus preaching, as they've heard of Jesus working miracles, and they're thinking, maybe, just maybe, God has visited his people. Maybe, just maybe, God has sent us a prophet. Maybe, just maybe, God has sent us Messiah, the liberating king. And so this large crowd of people has followed Jesus to the middle of nowhere. But as the large crowd of people is coming into town, there's also, we're told, a large crowd of people that's coming out of town, a a funeral procession. Now, in our day, in our cultural context, if we're driving down the road and we see a funeral procession coming towards us with their lights on, it's customary for us to pull over to the side of the road and stop, right? In the first century world, if you were to see a funeral procession coming towards you, the culturally customary thing to do was actually to join it. And so the whole town has joined in this funeral procession as this woman leads the group out of town to bury her son That in that first century cultural context, likely the young man had died that day. That they would have buried a person who passed away the same day. At the end of the workday, they all would gather together and they would proceed out and bury the body outside of town. So this grief that she's experiencing is, is fresh. It's real. It's palpable. She leads the group. After she's done the unimaginable, she's, she's prepared her boy's body for burial, washed him, wrapped him, and he's laid upon a board and, and carried out outside of town. And so as they proceed, they encounter the crowd of Jesus. That, that here we have this enthusiastic parade of life And this dispirited parade of death. And the two crowds meet at the town gate. And and I love the detail that Luke includes here. It says, Jesus saw her. That Jesus saw her. That Jesus is surrounded by a big crowd of people following him. That she's surrounded by a big crowd of people following her. And yet Jesus is not distracted by the crowd. That that Jesus' focus narrows down to this one single life. He sees her. And friends, I think it's important to just step out of the story for just a minute and say whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that you've carried in with you here today, whatever struggles, whatever hardships, whatever heartaches, he sees the Lord sees you and, and, and doesn't just see you among the mass of humanity, but sees you personally, sees you intimately. There's something so powerful about the gaze of Jesus fixed on this woman. And, and the thing the story tells us about this woman's plight is it's not just a matter of her emotional pain. She, she's grieving the loss of her son, but there's more to the story, that, that the, the tragedy is even greater because it's not only that she's grieving the loss of her son, but this is not the first funeral, that she is familiar with preparing the body of a beloved for burial because she's also A widow. But not only is she bearing the grief and the pain of losing a son after losing a husband, but also the situation in which she finds herself socially and economically. In that first century world, her sense of security, her sense of well-being, her financial provision was tied up with her connection to a man, a husband or a son. And so in addition to the overwhelming emotional pain that she's experiencing, she's also in a situation that is economically, that is socially Desperate, and Jesus sees her he moves toward her. A dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her, and when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And that little phrase, his heart went out to her, is the, the, the translation of the Greek word splagizomai. And this word is the word that's most usually translated as moved with compassion. The, the NIV translators here translated as his heart went out to her. Now, in that Greek language, that word splagizomai, it's connected to the word splagnon, the, the, the noun, which is a reference to the bowels or the intestines. It's literally to be moved in one's bowels, which is not as gross as it sounds. Um, the, 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 what that means is the closest English equivalent would be just the way we talk about something being gut-wrenching. Jesus feels it deep inside his gut that he's moved with compassion by this woman's plight. And as we've talked about, this is one of the the most frequently used word to describe the emotional disposition of Jesus. He's moved with compassion when he sees her plight. And so he speaks to her and he says, don't cry. Now, Pause right there for a minute and let me just make a little aside, particularly for the men in the room. And especially for you husbands in the room. This is sort of bonus material. It's not really the point of the story. So just a little bonus material for you, okay? This is the only time in recorded history where a man told a woman to stop crying and it worked out well for him, okay? You know what I'm saying? Right? I'm just saying, right? In fact, in fact, maybe we make a principle out of this. Like, like don't tell a woman how she ought to feel unless you're planning on doing a miracle, right? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Can I get an amen, ladies? Yeah. Now, here's this tender moment, and I just totally took us out of it, right? Sometimes the story is so heavy that we just need to come up and take a little breath for a moment. But but, but Jesus sees her plight. He's moved with compassion. He he feels this gut-wrenching sense of compassion for her. He feels what she feels. This is one of the most powerful realities of the Christian faith. I've heard it said that compassion is feeling what it's like to to be in somebody else's skin. And only the God of the Bible revealed in Jesus knows what it's like to live in our skin. That he has taken on flesh to dwell among us. That he has entered into our struggle, our pain, our suffering. He knows what it feels like. And so Jesus is moved with compassion. His heart goes out to her and he says to her, don't cry. Which would have been a cruel thing to say if he wasn't going to do what he's just about to do. Pick up with me in verse 14. Then he went up and he touched the beer, B-I-E-R, not like a Coors Light here, okay? He touched the beer that they were carrying him on and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother and they were filled with awe and they praised God a great prophet has appeared among us they said god has come to help his people and this news about jesus spread throughout judea and the surrounding country so exuberant crowd parade of life and despondent parade of death meet at the city gates jesus sees the woman is moved with compassion moves toward the plank on which this boy is being carried and reaches out and does the unimaginable. In that first century world, this is unimaginable that Jesus would do this, that he, he would reach out and he'd put his hand on the beer. And so I, I love the detail that Luke includes here. It says, and the bearers stood still. They're like, what is happening right now? Right? Because in that first century world, a, a dead body was considered unclean. And so a holy person... A person who wanted to be clean wouldn't reach out and touch a dead body because it was believed in that context that to come in contact with something unclean made you unclean. But this repeats the pattern that we see in Jesus' ministry time and time and time again. When when Jesus touches someone or something that is unclean, their uncleanness doesn't get transferred to him. His cleanness gets transferred to them. Their their impurity doesn't get transferred to him. His purity gets transferred to them. Their death doesn't get transferred to him. His life gets transferred to them. Jesus reaches out and touches the plank on which this boy's body is being carried. And he says... Young man, I say to you, get up. And he gets up. Now, I gotta tell you, at this point in the story, I'm a little disappointed with Dr. Luke, the storyteller here. I just got to tell you, because Luke has done such an incredible job of telling the story, right? Like we're feeling it, we're seeing it, we're imagining it. He's included enough nuance and detail that we're like right there in the story. And then he gets to this point, the, the boy hears the words of Jesus and he sits up and begins talking and Luke doesn't tell us what he said. I want to know what he said, right? I mean, he's been dead for a few hours at this point. What, he starts talking, I want to know what he said. Is he like looking around going... What, what, what's happening? Right? Or is he like, uh, man, I'm really hungry. I could really go for a pizza right now. Right? Um, uh, maybe it's like, guys, you would not believe the dream I just had. <laughs> I, like, I wanna know what he said. But Jesus speaks the word. And this young man's life returns to him. And I love the way that, that Luke conveys this. And he gave him back to his mother. It's really interesting because um, she is the focus throughout this story. It's really not about the boy. It's really about the mom. And it's interesting to note that there's a, a miracle story that precedes this at the beginning of Luke 7. This, the healing of the centurion's servant. And Luke often does this where he'll put back-to-back Uh, stories of encounters with Jesus and it'll be a man and then a woman. This is one of the ways in which uh, the, the gospel of Luke in particular really elevates the status and dignity of women, the stories that Luke tells about Jesus' encounter with women. But it's really important to note not just what Jesus does, but why he does it. That in that first story, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus heals the centurion's servant in response to the centurion's faith. That it's because of the faith of this centurion, this this Gentile who Jesus talks about that has greater faith than I've encountered in all of Israel, that that in the first miracle story, Jesus responds, he heals in response to faith. And what can sometimes happen is then you get this idea, well, that's the way it works. Jesus does miracles in response to people's faith. But does Jesus do the miracle here in response to her faith? Do, Do we see Jesus does this because she is so fervently prayed? Or that, that Jesus does this because she has she's has begged and she's pleaded. No. Jesus does this out of compassion. The compassion of Jesus for this woman in need who has now given her son back to his mother. And the response of the people is astonishment. Literally, they're, they're terrified. <laughs> As you might imagine. And, and they say that, that a great prophet has appeared among us. So when they see this, when they encounter this miracle, the first thing that they reach for to try to describe what they've seen is the, the, here's a great prophet. And there's a sort of precedent, a reason for that, that if you look back in the Old Testament, there are two times where you encounter people who are raised from the dead. Well, two times that you get a resurrection miracle. And they're both uh, connected with the stories of two prophets, Elijah. And, Elisha. and both of those miracles happen very near to this little town of Nain. That the way Luke tells the story is connecting the story of Jesus back to the Old Testament story of Elijah and Elisha. That Jesus is doing the, the, the Old Testament stuff. That Jesus is the culmination of, of Israel's story, of, of Israel's history, of, of Israel's longing. It's interesting to note the parallels between the story told here in Luke 7 and the story of Elijah told in 1 Kings chapter 17. Elijah goes to this woman who is herself also a widow and who has lost her only son and says, "'Give me your son,' Elijah replied." And he took him from her and he carried him to the upper room where he was staying and he laid him out on the bed. And then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow that I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy and three times and he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life be returned to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. And Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house and he gave him to his mother. You see the parallels between the Elijah story and the Jesus story. And yet there's also some really important distinctions. In the Elijah story, Elijah cries out to God. Elijah involves his whole body stretching out over the boy and and he cries out to God and he repeats himself three times. In the Jesus story, Jesus speaks and the boy sits up and starts to talk. Demonstrating that Jesus has the power of life in himself. That he speaks and the boy is raised. And the news of this spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. And we go, you think? <laughs> now, there are some important observations for us to make here as we conclude. And the first is just this. We don't know what happens from here with the story of this Boy and his mother. We just we don't get we, there may be some curiosity that we'd have, like what, what happened from there? Does does he go on to write a, a best-selling book in the Galilean times or nine hours in heaven or something like that? We we don't know. But here's what we do know: this resurrection was temporary. That that Jesus moved with compassion, restores this boy to life. To give him back to his mother only for him to die again. That there is only one whose resurrection lasts forever. It is Jesus himself who didn't come just to raise isolated individuals here and there, but he came to lay down his life that he might take it up again to conquer death forever so that by trusting in him, we might have hope beyond the grave that because he is raised from the dead to be forever resurrected, so too we have great hope if we trust in him that we too will be resurrected one day. And that hope sustains us no matter what befalls us in this life. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declares, the grave has no claim on me. That we can have that confidence because Jesus has come to conquer death, to give all of us who trust in him the hope of resurrection. The second thing that I think is worth noting here is that whatever it is that you may be going through today, he sees Whatever you've carried into this room, whatever you're facing as you walk through life, that he sees you. He sees you personally. He sees you intimately. He's not distracted by the crowd, but he has his gaze fixed on you. That he feels what it is that you're feeling. That his heart goes out to you. That he is moved with compassion toward you. And whatever it is that you're facing, whatever it is that you're walking through, you can turn to him. You can cry out to him and he will meet you in that place. He will demonstrate his compassion towards you. My hope and my prayer is that you might experience his compassion anew today. But there's a third thing that I think for for all of us here. And once again, just recognizing for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, who have placed our faith in him, who, who have our sins forgiven, who have the hope of resurrection and eternal life. For, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, God's agenda for you and for me now is to make us more and more like the one who has saved us. And so if that is true, if it is true that God's agenda for you and me is to make us more like Jesus, and it's true that the word that's used more than any other word to describe the emotional disposition of Jesus is move with compassion, then friends, what does that say about what God wants to form in you and me? He wants you and me individually. He wants us together collectively to be people whose lives are marked by compassion. And especially as we think about this year that God has for us. We think about that one life that God has called us to to pray for and invest in. That we would learn more and more to see people the way that Jesus sees people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for this powerful story of the boundless compassion of Jesus. And I pray that in these moments of response, Lord, we might encounter that compassion in new and fresh ways. God, for any who are here who have never come to that place that they have trusted in what Christ has done on their behalf, that they would come to know his boundless compassion afresh and new like never before today. That they can know that they can have forgiveness that they can have the promise of eternal life, the the hope of resurrection, merely by trusting in what Christ has done to say, Jesus, I trust you. I believe in what you have done for me, for us. I place my faith in you. I commit myself to follow after you. Come into my life, give me forgiveness. Give me the hope of eternal life. Thank you. And God, for those who are in this room who were just walking through difficulties, painful circumstances, struggles, grief, might they know that you see them? Might they experience your compassion in new and fresh ways this morning? And God, for all of us who have encountered the boundless compassion of Jesus, help us to be people who express that compassion to the world. And this is our prayer. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new.